Well, happy belated uh, July 4th, everybody. Everybody have a good uh, time seeing the fireworks on Friday? Yeah? A few of you? Not many? All right. You can clap. I don't know. You know, I'm always reminded of, uh, as I'm watching the fireworks, it, I, I was thinking of, uh, of our uh, Tom Wellborn, a member of this church who uh, is in Iraq today, and I was just struck by the idea that as we celebrate our independence as a nation, the very people providing that independence are at work. Um, the very people providing your freedom and my freedom in this nation are out working to preserve it. And, uh, and so, I just, I just caught myself thinking how, how sometimes maybe I don't appreciate my freedoms as much as perhaps those who are working to preserve them. And I just really... Uh, I really honor Tom and Jared and others in our church, you who have served. I know many of you in this room are veterans, and you have worked to pre- preserve my freedom and the freedoms of the people in this room, and for that we're very grateful. We open up in a word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, You are God who has created and given us your people, freedom. You've given us the freedom to live and to act and to move and to be. And Father, You designed it that way. You didn't want us to be puppets. You didn't want to compel us to do things. Instead, You wanted to create us as free beings. People who could freely respond to the love and the grace of Your Son, Jesus Christ as we are drawn by Your Spirit. And Father, we recognize that freedom is an essential component of our lives. We thank You that it's an essential component of this nation. And Father, this this weekend we remember that these freedoms have come with great costs, with great sacrifice. Much Much like the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ came at great cost. And so, Lord, help us not to be forgetful. Help us not to be neglecting of that, of that freedom. May we always remember just how precious it is. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About seven years ago, a very well-known musical artist uh, wrote... Uh, these lyrics. See if you know who this is. You could say I lost my faith in science and progress. You could say I lost my belief in the Holy Church. You could say I lost my sense of direction. You could say all of this and worse. But if I ever lose my faith in You, there'd be nothing left for me to do. Anyone? Sting. Okay, let's see. Uh, This is Sting. I'm not pretending to endorse this man's lyrics. I am using it by way of illustration. You know, Sting uh, was, is a very popular artist. Uh, some of you, most of you probably know him out in the audience, uh, though perhaps more of the younger generations, perhaps a little bit more so. Uh, came from the band called The, the Police. I was going to have my wife come up and do a few police songs for you, but she chickened out. And uh, Sting went out on his own and he wrote, he wrote this song... If I ever lose my faith in You. Again, the chorus. If I ever lose my faith in You, there'd be nothing left for me 
to do. Now granted, Sting was probably writing these lyrics with respect to uh, a woman, probably. Perhaps his his wife or girlfriend. uh, And he he was suggesting in the song that if he ever loses faith in that person, well, there'd be nothing left of his life. There'd be nothing left for him to do. In our series in Mark, we are now in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And in Mark 9.14, we are going to look into a story where we are going to see a man who is at his wit's end with respect to his faith. He's teetering on the brink of losing faith or perhaps holding on to it just tightly enough that he can go on living. The faith that he has The little faith that he has is faith that Jesus can heal his son. And he's holding on and clinging on to that faith with every last muster in his body. And he's knowing full well that if he loses that faith, if he loses that trust, that confidence, there'll be nothing left for him to do. His son will be lost. The title of my message today is Help. My unbelief. Help my unbelief. And this is a comment that comes from the man in the story that we're about to read about. Help my unbelief. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 14. We're going to look at 14 to 32. But by way of introduction, uh, we need to know where we've come from in Mark to see why we are here in the story. Uh, We've been studying Mark now for many, many months. And we've passed the halfway point. At this halfway juncture in the Gospel, the Apostle Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they gave a bunch of answers. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Messiah. But you see, Jesus, he goes on to explain what that means. He goes on to explain what the word Messiah means. And his explanation is one that includes uh, sin and death and dealing with that through suffering. He says the Messiah is going to come, is going to suffer, is going to be persecuted, is going to die so that He can conquer sin and death. From suffering to glory will be the path. And Jesus instructs His disciples there to follow that path. Well, Peter and the disciples don't like that, and so they rebuke Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, 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 you're not going to go on that path. And remember Jesus' words. He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of men in mind. Now, in order for them to understand this idea that suffering can lead to glory, that that's going to be the way of the cross for Jesus, in order for the disciples to get a hold of this, Jesus decides to motivate them. And so He takes them up on the mountain. And there before Peter, James, and John, He he transfigures before them. He becomes glowing white light. Beautiful. Incredible. Awesome light. And Peter, James, and John look upon Jesus and get a taste, get a glimpse of what glory truly means. That was at Mark chapter 9, verses 1-13. to He's trying to motivate them, Jesus is. Trying to help them see that it's all going to be worth it if you go the path of suffering. 
And now they're coming down the mountain. They've come down the mountain having heard from God Himself saying, listen to My Son. Rely on Him. Have faith in Him. And they're walking down the mountain after Jesus' transfiguration. And the story we read today is the story that they encounter at the bottom of the mountain. Peter, James, and John coming down the mountain, encountering the other nine disciples. And these nine disciples are trying to cast out a demon from a young boy. Let's take a look at the story in Mark 9, starting in verse 14. We're going to read the story in bits and pieces today. Verse 14. It says, And when Jesus came to the disciples, He saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to Him, greeted Him. And He, and he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? That is, His disciples. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you My Son, who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes Him, it throws Him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes His teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Okay, let's stop right there. Some of you may be thinking, we've looked at this section of Scripture before, and indeed we have. Two years ago, we looked at the Matthew's account of this story. However, Mark's account of the story is significantly different. And so, what we may have gleaned a couple years ago in this story, we're going to see a whole lot more in our story today. What's the scene? What's happening? Jesus comes down the mountain with Peter, James, and John. He looks and He sees the other nine disciples and there's a crowd gathered around them. People talking loudly. Scribes disputing with the nine disciples. He, Jesus looks and He sees the, the group of, of Torah interpreters, the Jewish authorities, disputing, arguing, with His nine disciples. Jesus looks and He sees a, a large crowd and He sees one coming out of the crowd. He says, what's going on? And one comes out of the crowd. It's, it's, it's the father of the boy who is demon-possessed. And the father pipes up and says, Jesus, I have a son. He's demon-possessed. He has a mute spirit who, who thrashes around and about in Him. Uh, the, the condition that we see here is almost like a, an epileptic condition of sorts. Not, not at all to tie epilepsy to demon possession, but in fact that is how the demon possession is expressing itself in more of an epileptic fashion. And the Father says, uh, I, I, I took Him to your disciples, knowing, thinking that, that, that they could do something. I had heard about them. I had heard about you. I asked them to help. And they attempted to, to exercise this demon. They tried many times. But they could not do it. This is rather unique that they could not do it. You'll remember earlier in Mark, Jesus gave his disciples, the authority to cast out demons. 
Mark 3, 14 and 15, it says He appointed twelve disciples that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And in Mark 6.13, they come back saying, Jesus, we healed the sick. We cast out demons. Look at what we did. They were successful in Mark 6.13. So why is it now, months later, they're not successful? You know, we can only uh, speculate a little bit of, as to why the disciples were unable to exercise this demon. Uh, I would submit that, that a spiritual... A spiritual task is not like an earthly task. A spiritual task is one that requires spiritual intimacy with the one who has given you the power to accomplish that task. A spiritual job, like that of exercising a demon or healing someone who is sick, requires deep reliance on the Spirit of God who is working in and through you to accomplish His purposes. Look briefly at verse 28. When the disciples ask, why could we not cast it out in verse 28? It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' answer to the disciples' question is one that relates to fostering a greater sense of dependence on God. Notice what it says in 28 and 29. And when he had come into the house, Jesus, this is at the end of the story, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, or some of your Bibles say in just prayer. A spiritual task, a spiritual exercise requires deep, earnest reliance on the Spirit of God to accomplish that task. I believe the disciples failed to exercise this demon because they had probably lost touch with the one who had given them their power in the first place. Ben Witherington says this. He says, Jesus informs informs the disciples that they have failed because this type of exorcism requires prayer, which is to say constant reliance on the source of power. The power is conveyed through communion with the Almighty. It is not inherently resonant in the disciples on an ongoing basis without such communion. Couldn't have put it better. Um, you know, when, when we when we pray for healing, when we ask God to do the miraculous, when we baptize in the name of Jesus, we are recognizing that the one who is asking for the miracle or the sign, or the one who is baptizing in water, the one who is making a profession of their faith, a public profession of their faith for all to see, the one doing the baptism, the one doing the prayer, does not have the power inherent in Himself. That power comes from God. And that person's authority comes from God. Even as um, I speak, or whoever speaks from this pulpit, I'm not speaking on my own authority. I don't have much things to say, quite frankly. Um, I speak on the authority of the Word of God. I speak in accordance with His power, relying on Him. And the disciples at this juncture most likely were not relying on God relying on Christ. So we see Jesus responds to the crowd in verses 19 to the early part of 22. Let's take a look together. Jesus answered him and said, He answers the Father and He says to all, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him, bring the boy to me. Then they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to the boy? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into fire and into the water to destroy him. Jesus is noticeably frustrated with those around him. He's tired of their lack of faith. He's tired of their misplaced faith. Of his own disciples, no less, but also of the crowds who are disputing with them. And make it, make, to, to make it very clear, I'm not suggesting here that the disciples uh, don't have the faith that saves them. I believe they are regenerate. I believe they have gone on to believe in Christ by this point in Jesus' ministry. It is that they do not have the faith necessary to exercise this boy's demon. That is the faith that they lack. That is the faith that they lack. And Jesus to that says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring the boy to Me. And once in the, spirit, once in the presence of Jesus, this evil spirit inherent in the boy begins to convulse. Jesus witnesses this wild event. And He comes alongside the Father and He says, How long? How long has this been happening to him? Almost as if Jesus is uh, pausing to evaluate and assess the situation. He's determining what is the best course of action to take. After all, the disciples have all failed. The Father informs him that this has been happening since childhood, since he was a little boy. And that the demon has often tried to kill him by throwing him into fire, by trying to drown him in water. The Father continues His desperate plea the end of verse 22 and 23. He says, But if you, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now notice in yellow, I've kind of juxtaposed these two comments one, the first from the Father, the second from Jesus. What do you notice about it? The Father asks, if you can do anything. And Jesus responds, if you can believe. Play on words here. Uh, the Father to Jesus, if you can do anything, the disciples had failed. Jesus was their teacher. Their master. Whatever confidence this man, this father had in Jesus' disciples to heal his son had significantly waned upon their failure to perform the exorcism. And now he is face to face with the teacher of these disciples. Now he is wondering if the master can even do what the apprentices failed to do. If you can do anything, if you can help at all, if you can do something. And Jesus turns to him and says, in like fashion, if you can believe. If you can believe. Notice Jesus 
I found this fascinating. Jesus pays little attention to the man's brief questioning of Jesus' ability to heal. He pays little attention to that, doesn't he? The man says, if you can do anything. He doesn't say, if you can fully heal the boy. No, he asks, Jesus, whatever help you can offer, I'm not sure that you can, because the nine disciples that I asked, whom you are the teacher of, they were unable to. So if you can do anything at all, in a sense, to a lesser degree, he's questioning Jesus' ability right now in his heart. He's not sure what Jesus is able to do. But Jesus pays little attention to the fact that the man is questioning his ability to heal. Jesus knows that he's capable of healing. He's exercised demons many times before. What concerns Jesus is whether the man has faith in Jesus' power to heal. Jesus looks upon the man and wants him to exhibit faith that Jesus can heal. You might recall back in Mark 6-5, in the, Jesus enters into Nazareth. And the people of Nazareth, His own hometown, they don't exhibit faith in Christ. They lack faith. And it is said in Mark 6-5 that Jesus was not able to perform miracles or signs or wonders in that town because of their lack of faith. You know, we learned in that study that it wasn't that Jesus was prohibited from doing so. God can heal people whether they have, whether the afflicted person has faith or not. But faith in Christ, more than anything else, is what most often prompts God's healing power. In our story today, the Father is asking for whatever help Jesus can offer. And Jesus is asking the boy's father to believe that he can fully heal his son. The father responds to Jesus' request in verse 24. Very famous verse. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, this is a this is a very uh, unique verse. There's none like it in all of Scripture. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. What does that mean? What does the Father mean when He says something like this? Well, we have a couple options to consider. And if you have your outline, you might want to jot down some notes at this point. Uh, first, we could say, we could say, possibly, that the man believes and does not believe at the same time. Okay? We're, we're putting down hypothetical options here. Could it be that that phrase, uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, means he believes and does not believe at the same time? In short, I want to say no. It can't mean that. Uh, Bob Wilkin has a very helpful comment to this hypothetical answer. He says this. He says, I believe we can be certain that the man didn't mean this. Lord, I believe. Help me because I don't believe. Belief and unbelief do not coexist at the same time. Now, that's well said. It's put, put simply. 
What Bob is referring to is what is called in the laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction. You might want to write that down. And the law of non-contradiction states that something cannot be A and not A at the same time. I'll say that again. Something cannot be A and not A at the same time. In other words, if the man believes, he cannot at the same time not believe. Or if the man does not believe, he cannot at the same time believe. Belief and unbelief do not coexist. That is a philosophical impossibility, I would argue. Now some uh, postmodern philosophers would argue differently. But I'm not here to critique them. I'll let you speak with Tom Bennett after the service and he will he'll fill you in on Descartes, and, or not, not Descartes, uh, give, me, give me one here, Tom. Derrida. Derrida would disagree with me. That's right. Not Descartes. What am I thinking? What Wilkin is referring to is the law of non-contradiction. It cannot be belief and unbelief at the same time. That makes sense. So going back to our options here, we notice that the first option, he believes and does not believe at the same time, put a big X through that. That is not a, that is not a philosophical option here. We can't possibly maintain that option and be uh, reasonably uh, and be reasonable. We cannot maintain that option and, and make a reasonable case for it. Option one is insufficient. This brings us to option two. What about he believes but is fighting the temptation of losing faith? He believes but is fighting the temptation of losing faith. Now this makes a lot more sense. Uh, to this, uh, Wilkin goes on to comment in his article. He says this, The father meant something like this, Lord, I do believe you can heal my son. Help my vulnerability to unbelief. The man's confession expressed current faith. Lord, I believe. His request, help my unbelief, expressed concern about possible loss of faith. That is far different from saying that a person can simultaneously believe and yet not believe something. Back to verse 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The Father is expressing now His faith in Jesus. What we may have seen in verse 22 where He was asking if Jesus could do anything at all, Perhaps an expression of somewhat of his, of his unbelief there. Whatever Jesus had told him in verse 23 when He says, if you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes. That word coming from Jesus was enough evidence for this man, I would argue, was enough compelling authority coming from the lips of Jesus to persuade this man that indeed Jesus could do what He said He could do. And so the man moves from a state of probably unbelief to belief. And he expresses that. He says, Lord, I believe. He is expressing his faith in Jesus. He has faith that Jesus can heal his son. And he proclaims it. Lord, I believe. At the same time, however, at the same time, the man is aware that his faith is fragile. It's new. It's fresh. It's disposed to being weakened by temptation. And he probably believed the disciples could heal the boy, but they had failed. And so the man was now fighting the temptation again 
to lump Jesus' abilities to heal together with the inept disciples. Hence, we hear Him say, Help my unbelief. That is to say, help my tendency, the temptation that is welling up within me to not believe what you're asking of me. Friends, this is a much more uh, hermeneutically sound way of interpreting this text. So often, uh, teachers of this text, commentaries of this text, have the tendency to say that the man is both believing and unbelieving. Um, I'm not sure why the law of non-contradiction doesn't apply there, but apparently to some it doesn't. We can't both believe and not believe. That is not to say that we can't have a stronger belief. Uh, I'm not here arguing that we might not have something that we are more firmer in our conviction of. However, either we believe it or we do not. Interestingly enough, um, my wife rightly pointed out something to me as we were studying this text together this last week. She said, honey, look at the phrase, help my unbelief. I said, yeah. She says he's directing that to Jesus. And that indicates that he rightly believed Jesus was the only one who could help him fight off the temptation to lose heart. While on the surface, the phrase, help my unbelief, might cause us to think the man doesn't have faith, In reality, the fact that he directs the comment in Jesus' direction suggests he has a great measure of it. The fact that he's asking Jesus to help his unbelief shows that he in fact knows who he's putting his faith in. Let us keep in mind in all of this, friends, the object of our faith. I want to say very, very clearly here. The object of our faith. Jesus, is much more important than the fervency with which we believe something. The passion with which we believe something. Jesus asked the man to believe that he could heal his son. The father's faith was real, but it could be said it was not necessarily strong in character. However, his son, as we're going to see very soon, his son is healed even by the father's weak faith. The son was healed despite his father's ever-weakening faith. And too often we assume that, that Jesus isn't answering our prayers because we're not praying hard enough or because we're not praying passionately enough or because we're not asking fervently enough. Um, you know, I've, I've seen, I'm sure you have as well, I've, I've watched uh, um, uh, so-called uh, you know, faith healers on television. Uh, and this is not to suggest that all of them are illegitimate. Perhaps many of them are legitimate. However, I've seen many of them at times suggest when a, when a healing has failed or when someone has not been able to, to stand up from the wheelchair or to get off the crutches, the man, the preacher might proclaim, well, you didn't have enough faith. You, didn't have, you weren't praying hard enough. You weren't praying passionately enough. You weren't asking deeply enough for it. I suggest to you that's not what Jesus is asking of the man here. He's saying, believe in Me. Believe in Me. Me, the object. I am the one with the power, Jesus says. Your faith, however fragile it may be, I want it to be directed at Me. At Me, Jesus says. That therein lies the power. 
It is not how hard you pray for it. It is where you are placing your trust. Jesus asked for faith in Him. He is what supplies the power. And one final word about verse 24. I knew we would spend the majority of our time here, but we might often assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, we might often assume that verse 24 uh, is perhaps the man's uh, salvation experience. Um, The text doesn't necessarily suggest that, so I want us to be careful here, okay? Uh, Remember, the man is expressing faith that Jesus can heal his son. Now, perhaps intermingled in that belief is the man's faith that Jesus can save him to the uttermost, can be his Savior, is the Messiah, etc. Perhaps intermingled in the man's faith that Jesus can heal his son is the faith that Jesus can save him from hell. But the text doesn't tell us this. So we are altogether unsure of when the man's salvation experience may or may not have occurred here. However, we can learn a few things about faith towards salvation from verse 24. I want to just say three brief things about the, the implications for salvation with respect to Mark 9.24. There are three, two things that we can draw from it, and then I'll add in a third. Two things that we can draw from Mark 9.24 about faith unto salvation or, or uh, the implications of this verse on salvation. Number one, we either believe in Jesus or we do not. There is no kind of. There is no maybe. There is no, well, partly I did and then I didn't. Friends, you have either believed in Jesus or you have not. You are either saved or you are not. Secondly, once we believe, unbelief is still a temptation. Now, this is critical, friends. I, I, I get the impression so often that we think, well, once I'm a Christian, then I'll, I'll, never, I'll never waver in my faith. I'll never have a tendency to not believe. I'll never go on and worry about, uh, about the legitimacy of my faith. Friends, that is not true. That is not true. I have had a couple crises of faith in my life. I was saved as a young boy. I got into college and I heard things at the junior college that they were teaching in the philosophy class and that rocked my faith. That rocked my faith. The temptation to unbelief was strong. It was real. It was present. And I have no doubt there's some of you in this room here today, Christians, you who have believed in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, and you're having doubts about your faith. You know what? That's okay. That's normal. That's exactly what Satan's trying to do. He is trying every day to cause you to go back to a state of unbelief. That is his mission on your life. And if you aren't receiving that temptation, I would argue that, that you're probably not very self-aware because that's exactly where Satan's trying to hit you. He's trying to undermine your faith every single day. The temptation of unbelief is real and it happens to Christians. However, and I want to draw this out separate from verse 24, I want to make a very, a very uh, firm statement about this. Yet once we believe in Jesus for salvation, we are eternally secure. John 5.24, we have passed from death 
to life. Regardless, friends, regardless of whatever temptation we might later succumb to, even faithlessness. Now that for some might be hard to swallow. Uh, but I could walk you through 2 Timothy 2.13 and make a, a strong case for this. Not only that, I could walk you through the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John and make a strong case for this. When we believe in Jesus, we are forever secure in Christ. Period. Even faithlessness, if we succumb to it, will not keep us from paradise. I, you know, I'm reminded of John the Baptist. You remember in, in, uh, at, when Jesus came down for the first time, John looked up and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John believed. He looked upon Jesus and says, There He is. There's the Messiah. And He proclaimed it for all to hear. And then Jesus' ministry went on to be something that John was confused about. Jesus went on to exhibit a life of of suffering, of, of meekness, of humility. And John was wondering, and he sent two of his disciples when he was in prison, and they went up and they asked Jesus, are you the coming one, or are we to look for another? John the Baptist, faith in Christ. John the Baptist, months later, are you the coming one or not? John the Baptist, succumbing to the temptation of unbelief. And yet I have no doubt the man was saved. No doubt. As great as he was, Jesus says that John was one of the, great, the greatest prophet of all. And yet he himself, at that moment, in, Mark, in Matthew 11.3, when he asked, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He had fallen to the temptation of unbelief. Friends, you can Lose assurance. You can lose it. It's when you take your eyes off Christ. Charles Stanley uh, says this. He says, I have never met a Christian who had lost his salvation. However, I have met plenty who have lost their assurance. And that's true. Just because we've succumbed to the temptation of unbelief, just because we've lost assurance that we're saved, just because we've, we've moved off from a, a point of faith in Christ and now we're, we're in a dark place of doubt. You know what? You may have lost your assurance. You haven't lost your salvation. And how do you get your assurance back? You go back to the Word of God. You go back to the Word of God and you read what Jesus says about your eternal destiny. And you return to a state of confidence. Back to our story. Quite a long rabbit trail there. Back to our story. We're going to finish up quickly over these remaining verses. 25 to 27. The man exhibits faith in Christ. And so what does Jesus do? When Jesus saw that the people came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus healed the boy in response to the Father's faith. We can be quite sure the Father believes here because Jesus responds to his faith. It was not great faith, but it was faith placed in the right object. It wasn't fervent faith, it wasn't passionate faith. 
It wasn't faith that was, that was strong and fortified. But it was placed in the right object. It was placed upon Jesus. And Jesus turned and healed the boys, the, man, the man's son. To verses 28 and 29, which we've already looked at. Jesus returns with his disciples when he came into the house. Presumably, uh, they've gone back down now, perhaps to Peter's house. His disciples asked him privately, we could not cast it out. Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. It's dependence upon me. It's faith in me. And faith in me for, in this text in verse 29 is expressed by prayer and by fasting. By utter reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, this was a story of faith. A story of reliance upon Jesus. And the disciples failed. And as we close out, we're going to read three more verses. The final verses that we read, which are somewhat really unrelated to the story, but I wanted to cover them nevertheless. These final verses, Jesus is going to be reminding them that this story of faith and reliance upon Him were going to be necessary in the midst of the difficult circumstances that were to come. Notice verse 30. Then they departed from there, and they passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know it. For He taught His disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And after He is killed, He will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask Him. If ever there would be a time of faith, a time to trust, it would be at the time that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified. And now Jesus, for the second time, makes it very explicitly clear. I am going to die, Jesus says. I am going to die. I am going to raise, but first I am going to die. The path to glory begins with suffering. And the disciples who by now have failed Jesus on multiple occasions, both in their speech, in their actions, in their understanding, now they simply keep quiet upon hearing Jesus' words. But surely, this distressing news from Jesus is beginning to sink in. A theologian by the name of Ernest Best wrote, they, speaking of the disciples, they understand enough to be afraid to ask to understand more. They understand enough to be afraid to ask to understand more. The disciples are becoming aware of what is going to happen. And they are somber and they are quiet. And Jesus is reminding them, have faith in Me. Trust Me. Rely on Me. Some closing thoughts, friends, for all of us to consider. First, Jesus asks us to believe in Him. And guess what? His request remains the same whether the question is, how can I be saved or can you heal my son? Jesus says, believe in Me. And that request goes for whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with in life. It truly does. Whether it's, how can I be saved? Believe in Jesus Christ. How can my son be healed? The Father asks. Believe in Jesus Christ. What is one of the most difficult things in your life today? I want you to pause and think about that. I'll give you a moment. I want you to ask yourself, is it an illness that you have? 
Is it looking for work? Is it a strained marriage? A strained relationship? Think right now, what is the hardest thing that I'm dealing with today? What is something that is seemingly impossible for me to handle? Do you believe God can help? That's a simple question, right? I've given you the illustration many, many times about the keys. We lose our keys all the time in my house. Uh, I believe God can find keys. I believe God is a, is a pretty big God. I believe He knows where those keys are. And, and theoretically, I believe He knows and can help me find those keys. But it's interesting. It is only when my wife prays and searches herself that the keys are found. I have a suspicion that I probably don't believe God can help me find my keys. I know in theory He can, but I probably have that up in the theoretical realm and I have not embraced it. I have not trusted that statement. I have not recognized that as simple as that is, as simplistic as that is, my wife truly believes that God can help her find her keys when we are exacerbated. What am I trying to say? Exasperated. Thank you. I'm having senior moments lately. Have you guys noticed that? I'm 29 and I'm having senior moments. My wife believes it. She believes He can help us find our keys. And I think I don't. And so when I ask you the question, do you believe God can help? I'm not asking you to say, well, yeah, I know He can. No. I'm saying, do you trust that He can overcome that problem, that difficulty, that illness, that search for a job, that marriage that is suffering. Do you believe He can overcome it? Or do you just throw it up there and say, well, yeah, yeah, sure. If so, ask Him. Ask Him with faith, with confidence, expecting that He will do great things. God works mightily when we exhibit faith in His Son. Amen? God works mightily when we exhibit faith in His Son. The father of the little boy said, Lord, help my unbelief. In so doing, he was making, he was making an expression of his faith in Christ. Let us be like that father, asking Jesus for help in the things in which we need help in our lives. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, we know You are a great God. We know You can do great things. But Father, sometimes we only know that in name only. Sometimes we forget to embrace that truth. To hold on to it. To believe it. Father, I pray that we could mimic the faith of this Father coming to Jesus, asking Him for help. Lord, He didn't come with great faith, but He put it in the right object. He put it in Your Son. I pray that we would put our faith in the right object in Your Son, whether it is to be saved eternally, whether it is to be healed, or whatever we need to have, whatever we need that is good, Father, for our lives. I pray that we would claim it by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be dependent upon You, to be reliant upon You. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.